0: following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward sufferings. For more information about us, please visit GCCLasCruces.com. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 6. We come this morning to Matthew chapter 6 where we find ourselves in the very middle of of our Savior's Sermon on the Mount. I want to begin by simply reading the passage before us this morning. And so, as always, it's with a great sense of privilege and honor and extreme unworthiness that I both invite and implore you to hear and heed the life-imparting, faith-arousing, heart-enlarging words of the Son of God. They have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp, the the eye is the lamp of the body so if your eye is healthy your whole body will be full of light but if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness if then the light in you is darkness how great is the darkness no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, Matthew writes this good news narrative in order to present his hearers both then and now with the king and his kingdom. In chapter one, Matthew establishes the king's identity and announces his arrival. In chapter 2, we see the king adored of all people by Gentiles from the east, and we see him preserved by his heavenly father as Herod pursued him as a child. In chapter 3, we read of his preparation and his baptism in the Jordan River. In chapter 4, we hear him begin to proclaim the good news of the kingdom after emerging victoriously from the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights and then as we saw last week and the past three sundays in chapter 5 jesus as the new and greater moses ascends the mount takes his seat and not only pronounces god's blessing upon those who would eventually be his new covenant people But then he calls these very same people to a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Chapter five, verse 20. This surpassing righteousness, as we've been calling it, that Jesus calls his disciples to should have an impact. Number one, on our relationships with others, as we saw in the rest of chapter five. And it should also have an impact and especially have an impact. On our relationship with our Heavenly Father, as Jesus teaches us here in Matthew chapter six, the standard that our Savior points us to is nothing less than perfection. As we saw at the very end of chapter five, where Jesus says in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect rather than that being a crushing demand that is meant to drive us to despair so that we seek salvation and justification in christ we have to remember that our lord's pronouncement of divine blessing and favor over his new covenant people comes before this call to perfection so it isn't you therefore must be perfect in order to earn and attain salvation but rather as a people who have graciously and mercifully been blessed and honored and favored and saved by my father, strive to be perfect, strive to be whole, strive to be mature, as the word indicates in the Greek, strive to be mature as your father in heaven is perfect. As we come to these 34 verses in chapter 6, one of the strong and recurring emphases in the chapter is our savior's mention of the father in heaven specifically your father in heaven 12 times in these 34 verses jesus throws out the phrase your father in heaven or your heavenly father 12 times the entire chapter revolves around the christian's relationship with the father Again and again, Jesus points out that our Heavenly Father sees, and he knows us. He sees our needs, and he knows us. He cares, and he is intimately acquainted with all our ways. The God of Psalm 139, who searched David, who knew David, who discerned David's thoughts even from afar— it's the same one that Christians, because of the person and work of Christ, can now call Father. We can call him Father. He is the one who hems us in behind and before. He is the one who lays his hand upon us and who keeps his hand upon us. This is our God and Father. Chapter 6 teaches us a lot. But the one truth that seems to be dripping like sweet honey from the honeycomb of this chapter is this. Everything we do as children of God must be done before the face of God and for the glory of God. I repeat, if there's one truth dripping from this chapter, the honeycomb of this chapter, it's this. Everything that we do as children of God must be done before the face of God and for the glory of God. Jesus, in Matthew 6, calls us to a life lived to and before and for our Father in heaven. He calls us to a life lived to the Father and before the Father and for our Father in heaven. At my Simeon Trust meeting on Friday, my good friend and fellow pastor Lance Renfro pointed out the connection between the end of chapter 5 and the whole of chapter 6. Chapter five ends with Jesus saying you, therefore, must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And then chapter six drives us to the father in order to pursue this perfection and this wholeness and this maturity. He doesn't just say, be perfect and go your way. He says, be perfect. And then he points us 12 times to the father to try to pursue perfection or wholeness or maturity apart from nearness to the father is an exercise in utility it's vain and let me just clarify something again as i had to last week lest someone misunderstand what we are saying here this morning we are not saying that christians can reach a state of sinless perfection in this life again we are not saying that christians can reach a state of sinless perfection in this life We are saying that Christians should strive to meet God's standard of perfection. Big difference. It seems like we have extremes all around us. Too often we walk around with a pessimistic, cynical, negative, defeatist view of the Christian life. And the truth is we are and will remain sinners throughout this life. That's the truth. At the same time, we are justified. We've been declared righteous by the God of heaven once and for all on the basis of Christ's perfect person and work on our behalf. Martin Luther back in the days of the Reformation seemed to coin a phrase that captures the very heart of what we're saying here this morning. Indeed, it captured the very essence of the Reformation. Simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously justified and sinner. At the same time, justified and sinner. And that's what we are. And we should strive as justified sinners to live up to what we are in our Father's eyes. Righteous as our Father in heaven is righteous. At least in the mind of Jesus, he can call... His disciples to be perfect as their father in heaven is perfect and then just a few verses later Instruct them of their ongoing need to pray to the father that he would forgive them for their sins Do you see that? In just a few verses he calls us to be perfect as our father in heaven is perfect and then he says that you ought to Be in a process a habit of Constantly praying to the same father to forgive you your trespasses your debts against him so the christian life according to jesus here in these few verses is characterized by number one a continuous striving for perfection wholeness and maturity and number two an ongoing need to pray for forgiveness that keeps us from both extremes that keeps us from the extreme of not striving or the extreme of believing that you can enter into a state of perfection. He keeps us right in the middle. As we begin, Jesus drives into the main sin that his disciples will face as they battle the Christian life, as they strive to be perfect as their father in heaven is perfect. And that sin that he drives into here in verse one of chapter six, is the sin of seeking man's applause and approval. Again, if you can picture the chapter and verse numbers gone, chapter five ends with, you therefore must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And then Matthew six begins with a warning immediately after that. There's no chapter verse. There's no chapter. There's no verse number here. It's literally be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. As God, Jesus knows the human heart all too well. He knows his people infinitely well. He knows us perfectly. He knows that a perverted motivation can make an otherwise righteous act Into a selfish act that disgusts his heavenly father and calls for his reprimand rather than his reward Jesus knows that a perverted motivation can take an otherwise righteous act And turn it into a selfish act that disgusts the father And brings about his reprimand rather than his reward It is so easy for us, isn't it, to allow sin to hijack holy practices, to allow sin to hijack righteous living. And it's terrible how much prominence and how much weight we can give and we can ascribe and we can assign to man's opinion and man's approval and man's applause and man's acceptance. There's a constant tension between fearing man and fearing God that many of us struggle with. I think of the end of Isaiah chapter 2 when Isaiah the prophet calls the attention of his readers to that eschatological day of judgment to come, that final day of judgment. And then he concludes that by saying, and I quote, Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils for why should he be esteemed? Stop regarding man. Judgment's coming. Stop regarding man. In the context of Matthew 6, the righteous practices that are in danger of being hijacked by sin are, number one, giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. Practices that were deemed the most important in first century Judaism. So Jesus picks up and he begins to teach and instruct on these matters. Whenever we sin, specifically the motivation to be seen and esteemed by others, that hijacks our righteous acts. That shows that we are not only guilty of idolatry, that is, ascribing worth to the praise and approval of man, but whenever we do that, whenever we sin by seeking the praise and approval of man, we're not only guilty of idolatry. But we are in danger of losing our heavenly reward. Notice what he says here. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. What are these rewards? We know that rewards will come in eternity. There will be a day of judgment. Where the guilty, those who are not covered by the blood of Christ... Will be judged and assigned to everlasting torment. But that day of judgment will also be a day of reward and honor and glory for the people of God. It's not the first time Jesus mentioned this. He mentioned this back in chapter 5, verse 12, regarding enduring persecution. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven talks about this in matthew chapter 19 verse 29 that everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life the bible's full of talk of rewards i think specifically of first corinthians chapter 3 where the apostle paul says no one can lay a foundation other than that which is already laid which is jesus christ Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, the day will reveal it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort, what manner, what type, what kind of work each one has done, and now listen. If the work that anyone has built on, the foundation, survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Every time we seek man's approval, we cease to build upon the foundation of Christ with good quality metals and stones and gold and silver. And we introduce into the lord's work wood and hay and stubble and all of that will be burned up on that day it won't last it won't survive the fire second john 8 says watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward in revelation eleven eight, 8 we read this the nations raged but your wrath came o god And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants has come. A day of reward is coming, friends. And when the Bible lays out reward and the focus on eternal rewards as a legitimate motivation, we have no business saying, well, I'm not just after rewards here. I don't want rewards. I just want Christ. When the Bible lays out rewards as a legitimate motivation for you, for your endurance, for your holiness, you ought to think highly of that. A lot of people will resort to kind of a false sense of humility when it comes to this and say, I just I'll just be happy if I can make it. I'll just be happy if I can get there. But when the Bible talks again and again and again about not losing your rewards, that should matter to us because it will matter in that day. I assure you of that it will matter in that day. Eternal rewards. Well, Jesus goes on and he instructs us in five areas in this chapter. He instructs us in the area of giving, in the area of praying, in the area of fasting, in the area of treasures, and in the area of worry and anxiety. And so let's dive in. Look at verse 2. The area of giving. Thus, when you give to the needy, he assumes his disciples will care enough to give to the needy. Sound no trumpet before you. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. There was a big deal made by the religious leaders of the day. Whenever there was almsgiving, whenever there was a relief, a a mercy gift for the poor, there would be this showmanship that would overtake the streets and People would say, "Look, look, look! What they're doing? They're bringing their donation for the poor. They're they're helping this cripple. They're helping this blind man. Look at what they're doing! They made a big show of it." And notice that little phrase at the end of verse, at the middle of verse two: "That they may be praised by others." That was their motivation. It wasn't to help the poor. It wasn't a righteous act that sought to relieve the distress of the poor, the pain of the poor. It was that they may be praised by others. They had one eye on their gift and the other eye not on the recipient of that gift, but on the others, on the other people that were looking upon them. That was their problem. Jesus uses a word here, hypocrites, that referred to in the Greek, play actors. The theater was a common thing back in that day. And a hypocrite was simply someone who would put a mask on, play the part, and then take the mask off. Jesus says these religious leaders are, they're actors. There's not a genuineness there. There's not a real concern for the poor. There's not a real passion for the glory of my father. They're actors. It's all for show. It's all that they might be praised by others. That they would be the talk of the town. Well, notice the end of verse 2. It's tragic. Truly i say to you here's an assertive statement an absolute truth they have received their reward what a tragedy right that the lord could look upon something you did and say that you and speak of your reward as something already in the past not something in the future the christian looks forward to a future reward yeah i'm with you I, I want nothing more than just to see Christ face to face, but when he promises me rewards, I better esteem those rewards. At the same time, it would be horrible for him to speak of my rewards as something I've already received in the past, because if it's something already received in the past, it had to do with seeking the applause and applaud of people who are nothing more than dust. Nothing more than dust. If that's what you're after, Jesus says you can attain it. You can get it. It's easy. It's very easy. He says, verse 3, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I really believe our Lord did have a sense of humor. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand's doing as you're giving. The left hand's over here just like looking at the trees and the rocks and the right hand's like, you know. He, he's, he's accentuating and highlighting the secrecy so as to not even be tempted that your left hand wouldn't know what's going on. Much more, those around you, outside of you. He says, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, verse four, so that your giving may be in secret, hidden, unseen. No one notices. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, there's one who sees in secret. There's one who knows what happens in the secret place. There's one who knows what happens when no one else is around, and that is our Father. You see what he's doing here? He not only calls us to be perfect, as our Father in heaven is perfect, but then he drives us to have this preoccupation with this Father who sees and knows and understands what happens when no one else sees and no one else knows and no one else understands, because it's the secret place. He's pointing us to a life lived to and for and before the father to use again some Latin phrases, right? That that R.C. Sproul is 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 big on. He's calling us to live Coram Deo. He's calling us to live before the face of God with the acknowledgement that I'm always ever before his eyes. I'm always ever before his face. If we can get that etched upon our hearts etched upon our minds we would live the way jesus calls us to live when we realize that my life is lived before the face of my father it affects the way we live it affects the way we give it affects the way we pray it affects the way we fast it affects the way we conduct our entire life he instructs us also in the area of praying look at verse five when you pray You must not be like the hypocrites. Do not be like them, he says. For they love to stand. That was a popular posture for them. And pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. At first glance, it seems like our Lord is focused on your bodily posture or your location. But to conclude with either emphasis is to miss the entire point. The point that he's driving at is your motivation in prayer, your motivation, your location doesn't matter where you if you stand, if you sit, if you're on your knees, if you go for a walk. It's your motivation. The motivation to avoid is to be seen by others, to be praised by others, to be regarded as, by others as holy and righteous. We have a lot of ways that we can hijack this holy act of prayer. How many times have you said, I'm gonna to continue to pray for you. Continue implies that I have been doing so and I will be continuing in that manner. Or, I'll be praying for you. I'm going to pray for you. I was talking to a brother in in the past just saying it's almost better to instead of saying, I'll be praying for you because that signifies an ongoing present tense, right? Just be real and say, you know what? Why don't we pray right now? Or if you don't have the time, say, you know what? As soon as we hang up or as soon as we leave and depart, I'm going to pray for you in the next few minutes. That's better than signifying that you're in this ongoing state of prayer before God for this person or these people. Our words are, are it, it's so easy for sin to hijack these, these good things, right? Or to go around, as you've seen them before, prayer secretaries. They go around a congregation or a conference and say, how can I pray for you? And they write down your whole life. And if if you're truly sincere and you want to know how you can pray for people, that's great and that's good and you 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 should long to do that. But be careful of making a show of it. Be careful of doing it in order to be regarded as the mighty prayer warrior of Grace Community or the mighty prayer warrior of this conference. Let it be done in secret. Be creative. How can you figure out what people need in secret? For then you will receive a reward. Your father loves you and wants to see you flourish and wants to see you with his approval and his rewards upon your life. Therefore, resort to secrecy in not only your giving and relieving the poor, but in and especially praying to him. The most intimate, holy, sacred act on this earth is probably prayer. And it's so easy for sin To turn that into the most perverted act Because the motivation And end and goal Is the praise and approval of others And not God It's not about location It's about motivation It's not about posture It's about the purpose For which you're praying It's To pray to him and him alone And then he says in verse 7 When you pray Do not heap up empty phrases As the Gentiles do do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. But I immediately think of the prophets on Mount Carmel when Elijah is there. God is there, obviously. And there's a contest, right? The God who answers by fire, he is God. And, and, and what, what do the prophets of Baal begin to do? They begin to make this big show and heap up all these phrases to try to win God, their God's favor and to try to manipulate him into answering them. Jesus Jesus is going to teach us here that your father is not one who needs to be manipulated. He's not one who needs to be persuaded to hear you. He's not one who needs to be awakened. Remember they asked Baal. Elijah's like, where's your God? Is he on vacation? Is he in the restroom? Where is he at? Our father's not one like that in any degree. We don't need to heap up empty phrases, abracadabras, and all this gibberish. We can be real with our Father. We can get to the get to the heart of what we need because He already knows. He already sees the need. I was reading a, a first century historian, Roman historian, and he mentioned how listening to the prayers of the pagans towards their deity was quote fatiguing to the gods fatiguing tiring to the gods I think specifically of the time in uh, Isaiah where God says you're wearying me with your many words you're wearying me with your prayers you're wearing me out not that he can be worn out because he's omnipotent but the point is just speak what is your need what do you need what do you want he says your father your father doesn't need to be implored with many words they think that they will be heard for their many words think of that warning in ecclesiastes he is god in heaven you are here on earth let your words be few it's an insult to the majesty of God to think that we can manipulate him or get his attention by our words. He's a father who knows us. Imagine you who are fathers. One of the things you do not want in your life is for your, your, your children to view you a certain way, right? Let work. Work will come and go. Your ministry will be there You fail in the home, and there's serious consequences there. But imagine if your father, imagine a father, you as a father, your son comes to you and he's just like giving you all this gibberish. You know that all he wants from you is some time. That's it. He just wants some time to spend with you. But he's talking about what happened in the news this morning and he's talking about what happened when he went on that walk and he saw that jackrabbit take off on that trail and then he began to think of hunting and how it'd be a great idea to become a hunter. All of this rubbish and all of this nonsense talk just to get to the point of, Father, I just wanna be with you right now. He would say, son, just get to the point. You wanna hang out? Let's hang out. I'll drop everything right now. If we as sinful fathers want our sons to get to the point, how much more our heavenly father who loves us with more fervency and energy than we simple fathers could ever love our children with. He says, do not be like them, verse 8, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's wonderful news. He knows what you need before you ask him. Again, this is the God of Psalm 139. Now we're able to call this God our father. And he knows our need. He knows the word on our tongue even before we speak it. He knows what we need before we ask him he says pray then like this and the, the the structure in the greek is indicating not necessarily a ongoing or i should say a script every time we pray to pray always and only like this this script pray this script this is a pattern that he's laying out for us this is a uh, a, a method for praying uh, A mold that we should uh, Base off, of, base our prayers off of And it begins with an acknowledgement Of God as our Father God as our Father Our Father in Heaven He says Hallowed be your name There's six requests that he's going to Lay out here in what's traditionally called The Lord's Prayer The first three requests I will argue are primarily eschatological and what i mean by that is these are requests that are primarily about the uh, of what's ultimately coming at the end of the world they do have uh, relevance for right now of course but only because right now we are on a trajectory towards the end of the world we are on a trajectory towards the consummation we are on a trajectory towards the second coming of our lord jesus christ and so what's interesting is he calls us, first and foremost, to acknowledge God as our Father. We know we, we the intimacy of this relationship. And he seems to indicate that we will be praying together. Our Father. Not necessarily my Father, but our Father. He also reminds us that we are brothers and sisters under this Father. Our Father. The first petition Is asking God to work in such a degree That his name is seen and regarded as supremely holy It's not a statement of fact This is a statement of longing This is a petition He's not just saying when you get to pray Acknowledge God's holiness No, he's saying pray that God's holiness Would be seen throughout the earth The petition appears to allude to Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and following. I'll read that for you. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and following. The Lord says to Israel, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came And i will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them and the nations will know note that the nations will know that i am yahweh declares the lord god when through you i vindicate my holiness before their eyes now what's interesting is he goes on to talk about that classic text we all refer to in the new covenant where he gives us new hearts and he, he sprinkles clean water on us and we're clean and he delivers us from all our idols and he gets a new spirit in us and he puts his holy spirit in us but then he goes on to talk about bringing them back to the land and it's a land that's descriptive of a kind of new eden we're back to the garden which ultimately points us to the new creation to come at the end of the age and for all eternity. And so what I believe Jesus is getting at here in Matthew chapter 6 in this first petition is Father, work in such a degree, bring about your aco- bring about your purposes, your sovereign purposes so as to secure what you promised back in Ezekiel's day that you would not only cause us to regard your name as holy through the new birth, through regeneration but that that work would be complete and that that work would culminate and that work would find its ultimate fruition and expression in a holy world where your where your holiness is vindicated where your holiness is seen and savored and appreciated and adored above everything and it begins here right Father, help me to treasure you as holy and as unlike any other thing in this world. Hallowed be your name in the hearts of my children. Hallowed be your name in those to whom I speak the gospel this week. May they regard you as supremely and ultimately and exclusively holy. The second petition is a prayer for the consummation of the kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. That's where we're headed, friends. Your kingdom. Where you rule with your word, your authority, in your place, over your people. May it come. And right now we know that it's coming in stages, isn't it? Every time someone bows the knee to the lordship and kingship of Jesus, that kingdom in in part is seen in a person submitting to the kingdom, loving the king, Pronouncing the gospel of the kingdom the good news of the coming kingdom but that kingdom will ultimately come on that last day when the king comes on that last day and so this is a prayer that we would be ready that the kingdom would come and be consummated and be the only thing that lasts in the very end when that kingdom comes and takes over all the kingdoms of the earth banishes all godlessness and sinfulness from this world And as the only kingdom that will stand in that last day, he says, pray that the kingdom would be consummated. Third petition, he asks that we would pray that his eternal purposes, his eternal sovereign will would be completed. Your will be done. How on earth as it is in heaven, immutable, sovereign, powerful, effective, supreme. May that will be that which is unleashed in this earth that will lead ultimately to the consummation. And then the last three petitions mark the beginning of this second section where we focus on temporary needs or temporary requests. The provision of food. It seems so mundane, doesn't it? To go from talking about this coming kingdom and this coming uh, rule of the Lord Jesus Christ where He is all in all, like we read of in. 1 Corinthians 15, and then we turn to give us this day our daily bread. But it only goes to show that our Father cares about the eternal, the grand, the eschatological, the consummation, the ultimate. But he also cares about the temporary. And the mundane day-to-day things that are important and needful to you as his child. He cares. He cares. This was probably possibly an attack on a common Jewish prayer of that day that would ask God to supply the food for an entire year. This takes us back to the days in the wilderness where God would provide manna not day, not, not weekly, not monthly, but daily in order to foster dependence upon the Father, foster dependence upon God. We should look to God day by day. Pray one day at a time live one day at a time and it, it, it just goes to show that we are we are we're truly vapor we're here today and then gone tomorrow we don't know when our, our time is up but we're to pray specifically today and it's almost reminiscent of the prayer of Agur in psalm or proverbs chapter 30 where he, he says that if, if i have too much food i i'd be tempted to forget you god but but if i have too little I'd be tempted to, to steal. And so just give me today what I need. Give me my daily provision. Uh, the, the, the fifth petition. Is, 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 it has to do with. Forgiveness. Verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Prayer should be request. But it should also be. Ought to forgive me. And you likens sin to debt. Because that's what sin is. It racks up and stacks up. And we know that. As in Colossians chapter 2, our debt was paid in full when that full record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands was nailed to the cross and we bore it no more and bear it no more. And so forgiveness is, in a sense, twofold, right? We have been forgiven once and for all by the blood of Christ, by the work of Christ, cleansed once and for all. But as Jesus taught his disciples in that upper room discourse, they have taken one overall bath, right? But then from that point on, they just need their feet washed. And that's what this is. Father, cleanse our feet from getting dirty in this world today. Cleanse our feet from walking in places we have we shouldn't have walked today. Forgive us. And verse 13: lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Don't don't drive us, Father, the way the Spirit drove Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Father, do not lead us that way. We know our frailty, we know our weakness. We know our tendencies, and even if we do find that we're not led in such directions, the second half of the petition says, deliver us from evil, or specifically the evil one. The word deliverance here signifies uh, 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 rescuing someone from a fate that they cannot otherwise escape on their own. We need deliverance. How often do you pray for deliverance? We often don't pray for deliverance because we see ourselves as sufficient and able and capable of rescuing ourselves and plucking our own feet out of the net. But as Psalm 25 says, Psalm 25:15, my eyes are ever toward Yahweh, for he will pluck my feet out of the net, out of the net. And then he instructs us in the area of fasting, in the area of fasting. When you fast, assuming they'll do it, do not look gloomy like the hypocrite's modern day language hangriness looking gloomy and doomy because you're making this huge sacrifice for the Lord you've gone without breakfast and that's it or lunch or dinner or breakfast, lunch and dinner he says whatever you choose to do don't do it in a way that would attract attention to yourself that you may be seen by others truly I say to you they have received their reward but when you fast anoint your head and wash your face make yourself look as fresh as you can as fresh as you can that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you fasting is an interesting thing some people use fasting as a way of asceticism as a way of inflicting harsh measures upon their body some people view fasting in terms of penance i've sinned i've done wrong and therefore i'm going to go without food in order to pay something well friend you can't pay it you want to pay it and yet never pay it go to hell and suffer for all eternity because that's the wages for sin we cannot pay any amount back to god either by fasting or by asceticism or severity to the body nor should we be legalistic about fasting fasting has been described as by matthew henry as putting an edge upon spiritual affections upon devout affections heightening godly affections refining sharpening godly affections please when we go without food and i believe that the primary means of fasting is to go without food obviously you can you can fast from social media and television and movies and things of this world that That aren't inherently bad, but can easily captivate you. I believe the primary uh, thing from which we're to fast is food. Because of what happens in us. We realize and we recognize that we truly live and feed upon God. That we truly hunger and thirst for him. And so when we go without these things, we realize, wow, who do I have in heaven but you? You are my portion. And those affections for him are refined and sharpened. Don Whitney says fasting can be an expression of finding your greatest pleasure and enjoyment in life from god and he mentions several purposes for fasting number one fasting strengthens prayer number two fasting seeks uh, fasting is a way of seeking god's guidance acts 14 23. fasting is a way of expressing grief fasting is a way of seeking deliverance or protection Fasting is a way of expressing repentance and returning to God. Fasting is a a way of humbling yourself before God. Fasting is, 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 is a way to show your concern for the work of God. Nehemiah 1 verses 3 and 4. It's a way of ministering to the needs of others. A way of overcoming temptation and dedicating yourself to God. And it's a way of expressing love and worship to God. He says when you do these things, when you go without food... He says, whatever you do, however long you do it for, try your hardest to not let others know you're doing it. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he moves on and he calls us to not only fast for the glory of God and pray for the glory of our father, but then he moves on in verse 19 through, through 24 to talk to us and teach us regarding treasures. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Everything in this world is subject to decay and corruption, as Romans chapter 8 teaches us. Everything is subject to decay. Everything is subject to be broken down, as some of us are well familiar with right now in seasons of trials. Everything, nothing's meant to last everything will break down wear down tear out to include our bodies but he's saying here is your treasures on earth don't store them up he doesn't say it's bad to have them in fact the bible never condemns rich people as having possessions it simply says to exhort them not to trust in those possessions we have this view today that you know to be rich is to be sinful God has highly favored some rich people And and he uses them to bless others He uses them to to, to bring prosperity to others He just says Don't set your hope on them Don't set your heart on them Don't lay up for yourselves The idea is treasuring them up Where moth and rust destroy Thieves break in and steal But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven These treasures are these rewards That we've been talking about all along When we do these things for and to and before the Father, we're storing up treasures in heaven. That's what he's talking about here. Focus on that, he says. In heaven, neither moth nor rust destroy, and there are no thieves to break in and steal. He says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. In other words, you will ultimately end up where your treasure is. If all your hope and inheritance is 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 in God, on his glory your heart will be there both now and forever and he moves on to 22 the eye of the lamp is the body the eye is the lamp of the body it seems kind of disconnected maybe he's going to go on and talk about good vision you see this is where materialism springs from we're bombarded with the flashy shiny things of this world says man the the eye is the lamp of the body and so if your eye is healthy if your eye has a good biblical view towards temporary possessions and you know their place and you know their transient nature your whole body will be full of light but if your eye is bad the word is literally unhealthy your whole body will be full of darkness in other words if you have an eye for the latest and the greatest, he says your body's gonna be full of darkness. This is the spring, this is the the spring into materialism, is a bad, unhealthy eye. With our eyes, we should see things as God sees them, right? We should see them as temporary, we should see them as transient, we should see them as susceptible to moth, rust, and thieves. Thievery. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And then he goes on to not talking about two types of treasures, but then now two types of masters. No one can serve two masters. No one can be loyal to two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He's been calling us again and again to serve our Father in heaven. And that's incompatible with a love for money, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Many have pierced themselves through with many sorrows because of their love of materialism and money and treasures here on earth. He says, you can't serve both. You can possess one while you're serving God, but you can't serve them both. Don't make decisions primarily based upon your love for money. Make decisions based upon what would most honor your father who sees and knows what's happening in the secret place. As we're going to find now, as he instructs us in the way of anxiety and worry, verses 25 through the end. He says, therefore, I tell you, after instructing us in the way of prayer, after instructing us in the way of giving, after instructing us in the way of fasting and and having a right eye for materialism and, and, and physical things in this world, he says, therefore... It's as though he comes to the conclusion of the matter. After all this glorious instruction about the father being our one sole motivation for all things in the Christian life. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Do not toss and turn. Do not stress out about your life. He specifically says what you will eat. Or what you will drink. Or about your body, what you will Put on and he asks this question is not life more than food and the body more than clothing life is so much more he has breathed the breath of life into us and is that is that life, not, is that life less than food and clothing and shelter and all these things no, this is the most important thing is your life and he knows that the father knows that and then he points out two illustrations here. Look at the birds of the air. I could imagine a, possibly some birds flying in the air as he's speaking. Look at the birds, he says. Just as Solomon said, look at the ant, oh sluggard. What's the nature? Look at these rock badgers. Jesus says, look at the birds. This one greater than Solomon is here. He says, look at the birds of the heaven. Just, just consider them. They neither sow nor reap. They're not farmers, you know. Up, casting seeds. I mean, they cast seeds, but th- through another end, right? They're they're pooping out seeds, and then seeds grow from that. But that's not the point. They're not out there sowing and then reaping at the end of the the season. They're not storing up their food into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Jesus says, and then he asks the rhetorical question. Are you not of more value than they? I mean, he picks some of the most insignificant creatures on the planet and says, look at them. Look how they are well taken care of. Look at how they don't sow. They don't reap. They're not gathering into barns. And yet your father's taking care of them. Are you not more valuable to your father than them? The birds did not receive a savior. The Son did not come to redeem birds, to reconcile birds. The Son was sent from heaven with the authority and approval of His Father to come and reconcile you. Are you not much more valuable than they? And He goes on. And which of you, by being anxious, tossing and turning and stressing about your life, can add a single hour to His span of life, We know that our times are in His hand. The Old Testament has established that again and again. He determines when we are born. He determines where we live, Acts 17. He determines how long we'll live. He determines it all. He is sovereign over everything, our birth, our life, our trials, our death. He knows the hairs of our head. He knows our days. They are all written down in His book. And He says, can worry, can anxiety Add a single span to the hour of your life. He's saying it can't. There's no way. Shouldn't even think of that. And verse 28 says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies. So first consider the birds. Now consider the lilies as it relates to clothing. The birds teach us about food and drink and provision internally. Now he points to the external, what we're gonna wear. He says, consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They're not out there working and spinning behind a sewing machine or any kind of, 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 of sewing device. And yet I tell you, even Solomon, he points to the richest man in the Old Testament in all of his splendor, all of his glory. Solomon is one of the wonders of the world. You had Queen of Sheba coming from the from, from long distance to come and see this man. People would come and trap Travel long distances to see Solomon in all his splendor and his glory. Jesus says even Solomon in all of his breathtaking splendor was not dressed like one of these. Jesus had a real eye. His eye was good. His eye was healthy. The best eye. The most heavenly minded eye. You see, when you look at the lilies... Do you see something more glorious than Solomon? Or do you see Solomon and say, I want that? Because that's indicative of the kind of eye you have. Either a bad eye or a good eye. And we ought to be praying that the Lord would give us good, biblically uh, shaped eyes to be able to discern what is truly beautiful, what's truly good, what's truly glorious. Like our like our, our, our Savior does here. Solomon was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, verse 30, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, he indicates just the transient, temporary nature of grass. Here today, chopped down, thrown into the fire the next day. Will he not much more clothe you? And he points out the issue, the heart of the issue. Oh, you of little Oh, you who trust my Father in a way that does not bring glory to my Father. Oh, you of such small trust. Oh, you of little dependence. Oh, you of little confidence in my Father. That's what the heart. Is, that's what he's getting at here. Oh, you have little faith. You see what Jesus is doing here. Is he is building up and encouraging and, and and pouring oil over the flame of their faith in the Father. He's pouring fuel over the, over the, the, the flame of faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. and the reason we worry and the reason we, the reason we fret and stress and toss and turn is because we don't trust our Father. But what are the anchor points that Jesus is giving us in this chapter for our faith to latch their teeth onto? Your father knows. Your father sees. And your father cares. And when you believe that your father knows what you need, and when you believe that your father sees everything you do in secret, and when you believe your father cares about you infinitely more than the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow, And when you know that your Father cares about you infinitely more than the birds of the heavens, you live a life that brings honor and glory to your Father in heaven. That is a life right there, lived to and for and before the Father in heaven. Simple, childlike faith that goes to God every day and says, Father, I pray that you would complete your mission in this world To vindicate your holiness at last. And as we're headed there. I just need a little bit of bread. And food for myself and my family today. And forgive me. For being a moron. When it comes to sin. And flesh. Forgive me. Forgive me please. And lead me in the way everlasting. And if I'm tempted. Oh deliver me. Out of the net. Deliver me from evil. You know what I need, you see what I have, and you care. That is fuel for faith, friends. That is fuel for faith. And so he concludes, Therefore, verse 31, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, he says, the term often used of unbelievers in that day. For Gentiles, unbelievers are consumed with these things. They seek after all these things. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But here's the exhortation. But seek first. Pursue first. Over and above everything else. The kingdom of God and His righteousness. Set your heart and your mind about The kingdom the advancement of the kingdom the spreading of the kingdom preoccupied with the consummation and coming of the kingdom and as you do that pursue the righteousness that I'm calling you to and all these things notice will be added to you in short you preoccupy yourself with my father's kingdom and his righteousness and my father will take care of you. My father will take care of you. Your father's got this, friends. Your father's got this. Therefore, conclusion, do not be anxious about tomorrow. It says well, he personifies tomorrow as though tomorrow's living being, just fretting and, and, and anxious. He says, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. It's his way of saying tomorrow has its share of worries. Tomorrow has its share of troubles and tribulations Sufficient for the day Is its own trouble Hence the call to Live for and before And to Your father in heaven If you're a believer here I want to ask you this morning Are you more interested in what your heavenly Father thinks of you or what People think of you There should be cause for Prayer and self-examination Before God this next afternoon do you show any concern for the needy and it's hard today isn't it we see fentanyl in our streets and we see how it's just tearing people apart and to help any degree financially is really to hurt there's a book out there called when helping hurts you give finances and people go and they use those finances to dig themselves into a deeper pit but there are other ways to help be creative Share a meal, whatever it might be, but do it in secret. I want to ask you do the priorities reflected in your personal prayer life reflect the priorities that Jesus lays out in what's known as the Lord's Prayer? Is there a a preoccupation in your mind with the kingdom, with His will, with forgiveness, the need for forgiveness, the need for provision, daily bread? Do you have a concern for fasting? For drawing near to God, for refining spiritual affections, for beating your flesh into subjection, for taking time to meditate on things above. And I want to ask you as a believer, are you, do you consider yourself, do others see you as a worry wart? A worry wart who's constantly tossing and turning and worrying about this day and, and the next day. I remember back in the day, Perhaps one of the only illustrations my wife remembers from when I was teaching a Bible study way back in like 2005 was apparently I said that worry and anxiety is like a rocking chair. You can rock all day. You can rock hard on it, but you don't get anywhere at the end of the day. It doesn't take you anywhere. Are you on your rocking chair today with worry, with anxiety? The way to combat that is faith that takes God at his word. If he sees you, he knows you, and he cares about you. Worry about today, living for his kingdom, striving for his righteousness today. And just one final word to those of you who are outside of Christ this morning. I want you to consider something. Being outside of Christ, listen to me very carefully. You have nothing and no one but those here on earth. The best you have on earth. To comfort you, to provide for you, to love you, are those who are considered by the Bible to be dust and frail and weak and temporary. Right now, you have no Heavenly Father with you. You have no Heavenly Father before you. You have no Heavenly Father waiting to welcome you home. Right now, because of sin, you are both an exile and you are an orphan. And I'm here to tell you this morning that if you believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, you can be and will be welcomed into the family of God as an adopted son or daughter to enjoy all the privileges of divine sonship, both now and for all eternity. And so I implore you who are outside of Christ today to look to him, to call out to him. Those who call upon him will never be put to shame.